Okay, everyone, good morning. Sheer do over. I gave a share last night. And um, the, uh, we had a problem with, forgot to change the battery and the mic, and it went out. So the first half of the shear was not recorded. So I'd like to redo. I was also extremely exhausted last night, so I wasn't uh, that satisfied with the, with the delivery yesterday. So I hope that today will be a little better and clearer, and also it will be recorded. So... Disregard if you've watched on YouTube the second half of that cheer. I'm actually going to delete it. Uh, and this is the second version. Okay, Tonight, today's cheer has been dedicated in honor of the birthday of Yaakov Smolyansky. So may this be a big schos for him, and he should continue to grow in Torah and in Yerushalayim and give his parents lots and lots of nachas. And uh, only, only good, good for the entire family. I also would like to dedicate this year in honor of my wife's birthday, which was yesterday on Hey Tammuz, Hashem should bench her, with a Shnaz Berach a wonderful good, good, good year, with a lot, a lot of blessings, both in the material and in the spiritual. She'd have a lot of satisfaction and nachas from the whole family, including myself, from all the good work. And I also want to thank her publicly for all the support she gives me in my work and all the work she does for my Yisrael and, and consequently for getting the light out to so many people. So thank you very, 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 very much. Also, um, in honor of a new granddaughter of mine, by my, by my daughter Yiti, and to her, a big, big mazel tov to her and to her husband Label. Shem should bless them both to raise her in good health. Uh, she's named after my very, very dear grandmother, Hanat Sivia. So may this be a schus of Elias Neshama also to my grandmother. Okay. That being said, let's take on the parsha. Um, this week's parsha is parsha's chukas. But before we go to the parsha, I'd like to mention, um, you know, as I mentioned so many times, we're living in messianic times. We're actually experiencing currently um, tremendous shakeup in world events where the world is forming itself uh, into position for the f- complete and final redemption. There's no other explanation to the things that are happening. One of the phenomenal good things that happened this year, and it happened on a very auspicious time on Purim, was that the United States of America recognized the Golan Heights as an integral part of the land of Israel. It was considered contestant land. Israel had taken that land in one of its... Wars, a six-day war, um, and um, and it was always considered contested land, like happened by all Israeli territory. What was magnificent this year is that it was officially recognized by President Trump and the State Department, and uh, that this this is that this is part of the Israeli map, part of Israel. Um, I'd like to talk about the spiritual significance of that. 
because there is everything that's happening in this world is a reflection of very, very lofty things. Now, Golan Heights represents something very high. What is the significance of the Golan uh, to spiritually to the Messianic age? Meaning, there are still parts of Israel that have not yet that are part of part of the land of Eretz Yisrael, but have not yet officially been recognized as Israeli territory, like. Uh, Judea and Shamron, which is ours, absolutely ours, no question, but yet is still lacking full, full recognition. Um, the but but the Golan was already announced, so perhaps so. What is the what is the what couldn't perhaps be the spiritual meaning of this? And what's the relationship to this week's parsha? That's why I'm talking about it now. So in Parsha's Chukas, um, the Torah begins with the with the mitzvah of the red heifer. And then after the mitzvah of Paraduma, the Torah talks about Miriam passing away and um, the Jewish people complaining and Moshe Rabbeinu um, beating the rock, which causes that sadly that Moshe and Aaron, Moshe and his brother Aaron, the high priest, are both prevented from going into the land of Israel. And then it says how the Jewish people are beginning to figure out a way how to go into Eretz Yisrael. Okay, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and now they're beginning their surrounding trek to get into the land of Israel. And they're met, they have to cross through various different nations. They make the attempt to go through the land of Edom, and they're blocked. Uh, Hashem tells them to move away. They continue further, and Aaron passes away at the end of the land of Edom, at the corner of the land of Edom, that's what it says. And... Um, after that, we hear we speak of a tiny little of a little war that happened between the Amalekites that dressed like the Canaanim and came to confront the Jewish people, and the Jews defeated them. And then we have a story that um, the Jews complained because there was no water again, and they were tired, and they were and they were and they were frustrated by uh, the mun, and they suddenly encountered. Uh, these uh, serpents, snakes, venomous snakes. Some of them died. Moshe makes a copper stake and puts it up high that everybody that looks at it can, will be, anybody that will look at the snake uh, will be healed. That story we have then. And finally, then we have a few miracles that happened as the Jewish people were about to cross through a narrow canyon uh, in which the people over there, the Moabites, wanted to throw stones down from, from on top as they were going to come through that narrow canyon. And the two mountains met and crushed them. The great miracle, and the Jewish people sing a song of salvation. They sing a song to thank Hashem when they realize what kind of miracles God has done for them. He moved the mountains. And finally, the Jewish people um, come to the land of Sichon. And um, they want to cross through Sichon's territory. Sichon doesn't even think of it. He comes out with a, to confront them with a huge um, army. And the Jews defeated these undefeatable Sichon and they conquer his land and then they also confront his neighboring uh, towering giant Og who also comes out to confront them they wage war against Og they conquer his territory and the Pasuk describes how the Jews settled in their lands that is the story a brief synopsis of Pasha's Chukas when we take a look at the parsha, we see that, the, that in this parsha specifically, the Torah brings together two periods of times that are, that are at the farthest um, points in the story of the Torah. 
Meaning to say that um, the, the Parsha's Chukas is a Parsha that was said very, very early on. The story, the mitzvah of the Red Heifer, very early on in the 40-year period. The rest of the Parsha is talking about think, events that happened at the end and, and the conclusion of the 40-year period. So we need to understand why the Torah is combining two um, events that are so far apart. Now to explain that a little better, let's do a quick synopsis over the entire book of Sefer Bamidbar. General, we know, this is an important rule, that the Torah is not meant to be in chronological order. There's a rule. You can't, by reading the Psukim, you can't derive and say that this event happened then without further evidence. You can't decide when things happened based just because of the order of the Torah. Because the Torah is not meant and hasn't been written necessarily in chronological order. That doesn't mean that every story is out of place. Actually, most of the Torah is in chronological order, but there are exceptions. And when there is an exception, there is a reason why there is an exception. Okay? So, for instance, the entire Sefer Bamidbar follows chronological order, besides the first opening of the Parsha. So, let's, let's see that. So, let's start a little bit with a brief history. In, Parsh, in Sefer Shamos, from Shamos to Vayikra, which period of time did we cover? You see, the Jews were, were taken out of the land of Egypt in the year 2448, in the month of Nisan. Okay? So that's discussed in Parshas in Shemos and Exodus, Parshas Boi and Parshas Beshalach. Okay? And then they go, they traveled uh, for, for, there for whatever, the, it was uh, 49 days until less, whatever, until they got to Harsinai and God gives them the Torah. Okay? So that's when in the month of Sivan. That's like a month and a half after they left Egypt, in the third month after they left Egypt, the month of Sivan in the year 2448. After that, we have the story in Parshas Kisisa of the Golden Calf. And um, the eagle. So that happened a month later in Tammuz. Moshe breaks the luchos. After that, we have a period of 80 days when the Jews are busy doing tshuva. That carries you through the month of Av and through the month of Elul and into the month of Tishrei. On Yom Kippur, which is the 10th of Tishrei, God forgives the Jewish people and um, gives them the new luchos, all in Parshas Kisisa. Then around that time, Parshas Teruma Tetzaveh, and it's not exactly in order, and there again, there's a particular reason why it is that way. Parshas Terumah Tetzaveh, and then Kisisa Vayakel Pekude, all those parshas are all about building the tabernacle. When did God command the Jewish people to build the tabernacle? Or at least when did Moshe Rabbeinu give it over to the Jewish people? The day after Yom Kippur. Okay, this is a half a year after they went out of Mitzrayim, they're commanded to build the Mishkan. Now, um, they spent uh, like about uh, two and a half months constructing the Mishkan until Hanukkah, but God didn't instruct them to officially inaugurate the Mishkan until a few months later, until the month of Nisan. So here we are in the year 2449. In other words, we're exactly one year after they left Egypt. This is the first year anniversary. That's when they established the Mishkan. They built the Mishkan. Now on that day, the Midrash tells us, the Gemara tells us, that Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu eight Mitzvahs, eight parshios. There are eight parshios of the Torah that would specifically deliver it on Aleph Nisan, the first day of Nisan, Bashana Hashenis, in the second year when they came out of Egypt. Now, this story is recorded in the Torah, what happened during that time, in the parshios Vayikra Tzav Shmini. Because in those, you have the instructions on the Karbanos, which they were going to offer in the Mishkan. 
But in Parsha Shmini, it speaks about the seven days prior, the last seven days of Ador, Shivas Yemei the seven days which was prior to the final erecting of the Mishkan. And then in the first day of Nisan is when they put the Mishkan up, and that's Vahiba Yom HaShmini on the eighth day, and God comes down. Okay? So now we're left in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Vayikra, Parsha Shmini. Now, the rest of the Sefer Vayikra is all mitzvahs that God commanded the Jewish people. We don't have an exact time when they were given, besides one. Achare Mos, which is right after the death of Nadav and Aviyu. Nadav and Aviyu died the first day when the Mishkan was inaugurated. That's when Nadav and Aviyu passed away. So the rest of the Parshish, we don't know exactly when they were given. The Torah doesn't say. I'm through to the end of Parshish Vayikra. Okay? But, so the last story we have recorded in the Torah is what happened on the eighth day. Vahiba Yoyim Ashmini, on the eighth day, which is Rosh Chodesh Nisan in the year 2449. Now, Sefer Bamidwa really continues from exactly that point. Now, not except for Parsha's Bamidbar itself, the first Torah portion in the book of Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers. The first Torah portion in the book of Numbers, the Torah says exactly when, is a, is a mitzvah to count the Jewish people, and, which seems like a continuation immediately afterwards, to set up the Jewish people in, set up the camp in a specific way, where you set up groups of tribes, Three in each side of the tabernacle, okay? Each of the three sides of the Mishkan. The camps, each one having a specific banner. And the Levites, the Leviim, being given their area where to camp around the Mishkan and their instructions of assembling and disassembling the Mishkan. That goes through the entire book of Bamidbar and the beginning, first paragraph, chapter of Parshas Naso. So all of that, the Torah says, happened on the second year for when they went out of Egypt, and the second month, which is the month of Iyar, okay? So the month of Iyar is a month after the events that we mentioned till now, because the events that we mentioned earlier concluded on the month of Nisan, the first of the month. First month. B'chodesh Arishon. This is B'chodesh Hasheni. Okay? So Rashi already says that this entire chapter is out of place. And the, the reason the Torah put it over here in the beginning of Amidbar, even though it happened a month later, and consequently afterwards, in Parshas Noso, Bahaloscha, we are going to continue narrating events that happened a month earlier, which means the month of Nisan, not the month of Iyar. So Rashi explains already why the Torah put the story of Bamidbar, the commandment of Bamidbar, before the continuing of the narration of the story, because Something that happened, one of those commandments, which is the Pesach Sheni, the second, uh, the mitzvah of, of having the carbon Pesach, which was given, which was one of the eight commandments that was given on the first day of Nisan, has a negative connotation to it. Because it reveals that that was the only, we learn out from there that the only mitzvah that the Jewish people, the only Pesach that the Jewish people offered was the first carbon Pesach, the first year. All the other years they didn't do the mitzvah, the Paschal Lamb of the carbon Pesach. And that's not is not, doesn't make the Jewish people look, doesn't cast them in a good light. So in order to cover that, we begin with a more positive story that shows God's love for the Jewish people that he commands us to be counted, okay? So again, with the exception of Parshas Bamidbar, from Parshas Noso and onward is all in the order. Let's go through what those Parshios are. Parshas Noso, after we finish the first section which deals with the Levites, 
is a commandment that Hashem gives the Jewish people that they should send out of the camp all those that are defiled. Okay? Rashi tells us, and the Gemara tells us, I think Rashi brings it as well, that this is one of the commandments that was given, yeah, Rashi says it, that this is one of the commandments that was given on the first day of Nisan. Okay, he's one of the eight commandments. Parsha Shiluch to send out those that are defiled from the camp. So again, so it's picking up exactly where we left off in Parsha Shmini. In Leviticus, we're starting in Parsha Snoso. We also have continuation to that, the Parsha of Sota and the Parsha of Nazir, the wayward wife, and the Parsha of the Nazir, someone who's separating himself from drinking wine, and the Nazareth. Uh, that Parsha, we don't know, I mean, no specific mention exactly when it was said. Okay, so the Torah doesn't give us a time period of that. After that, we have the mitzvah of Birkat Kohanim, which, even though I don't, I'm not sure if it's one of the eight partials. I, I didn't uh, look up all the eight, but we have to say that it was given to the Jewish people already on, on Rosh Chodesh Nisan because that was the first day that Aaron benched the Jewish people. So if Aaron benched the Jewish people with Birchos Kohanim, he must have had that commandment. So that makes sense that that also was already given by the first day of Nisan. Okay, what happens immediately after that? The mitzvah of the story of the Nisim, of the princes bringing their inaugural sacrifices. That happened on the first day of Nisan. Nachshon brings the first day, followed by the 12 tribes, each one bringing inaugural sacrifices for the rest of Parshas Nosa, the longest parsha in the Torah. It keeps repeating each one of those tribes. So this is all first day of Nisan. Bahaloscha, the mitzvah of lighting the menorah, also the first day of Nisan. And continuing Parshas Bahaloscha is separating the Levim designating them the process of how to make them holy, that is also said on the first day of Nisan. Then we continue, the next story of, is, is the story of the Karban Pesach, the second, that Hashem gives them the mitzvah, those that are impure, defiled, have a second chance, also given on the first day of Nisan. There it says specifically that it was said on the first day of Nisan. So now, these are the all this of Naso and Baloscha precede Bamidbar. Okay. Till now, it's all Nisan and the beginning of the month of Iyar. Now 20 days pass, and we're holding the 20th day of Iyar, and God's, and you have the parsha about the Jewish people beginning their first journey in the desert. When I say the first journey in the desert, after they have the tabernacle already, and they're set up in a specific camp, and now they're going to journey with the trumpets and the whole, the whole procedure, how it's going to happen. So when was that? When was their first... So they get instructions from God how to travel, and their first journey. So that's the middle of Pasha's Bahaloscha, three weeks ago. I mean, three weeks ago we read about it, and it starts at the 20th of the month of Iyar. Okay? Following. Now we continue. So, um, and then some of the stories happen over there. The Jewish people complained about the mun, and the, 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 they, 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 they felt they traveled so much, and they were tired. You have that whole, that whole story, and they wanted meat. That's really a story. They wanted meat. They were fed up with the mun, and Hashem Ramchur brings them the slav, and a lot of people die. And um, uh, Miriam here is Moshe, and Moshe complains to God, and God says, I'm going to give you 70 of the elders to help you out. Miriam hears how Zipporah is bemoaning, the, Zipporah, Moshe's wife, is bemoaning that the 70 elders 
are, um, are, 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 are it's a poor saying, I feel bad for their wives, they're going to leave their, their husbands, are going to separate from them. So Miriam then speaks Lashon Hara against Moshe to her brother Aaron. Hashem punishes Miriam, she gets Tsaras. That's the conclusion of Pasha's Baloscha. So that all happened right after the 20th of Iyar. So again, we're following the order. Then, fast forward a month, the Jews are now ready to enter Eretz Yisrael. It's the last day of the month of Sivan. Okay? They're about to enter Eretz Yisrael. The Jewish people come to motion. They want to send spies. That happened according to the, what is explained in the Talmud. Uh, that happened on the 29th day of Sivan. 29th of Sivan. Okay? So now we're already um, 40 days later after the 20th of Ir, 29th of Sivan, 39 days later, they send the spies. The spies took 40 days as they went across the land of Israel. Finally, they come back on Tisha B'Av. That's when they made the Jewish people cry all night and the horrific decree that the Jews have to make a turnaround and wander in the desert and the entire generation is going to die because they didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael. So that's Parsha Shalach. That's the, basically the to, some totality of Parsha Shalach with a few mitzvahs of tzitzis and so on and so forth that are all connected to that. Then comes Parsha's Korach. Parsha's Korach, according to the Seder Olam, which is a midrash, happened immediately after the story of the Maraglim. It was Korach's revolt against Aaron. Okay? That shows you the entire Bamidbar is a perfect continuation to everything before, chronological order, besides the first Parsha, and that is for a specific reason. Now we come to Parsha's Chukas. So the question regarding the Parsha's Chukas is, the first mitzvah of the red heifer, that's a commandment that was given to Moshe on the first day of Nisan. Again, that's one of the eight that we mentioned. There were eight commandments given. That was one of the eight. So if that's the case, comes out that Chukas, the beginning of the story, the mitzvah of Parsha's Chukas is out of place. The Torah should have said it earlier as it placed all the mitzvahs that we spoke earlier were said earlier. The, the, the sending out of the people that were defiled, the, the separating of the Levium, the story of the, of the lighting of the menorah, um, the Pesach Sheni, uh, all these mitzvahs that were given earlier, this should have been there as well. Why does the Torah rate with Chukas and put it over here? And to further uh, realize the contrast of it, as I mentioned at the beginning, this story of the red heifer is, Paraduma, is at the beginning of the 40 years, meaning on on, in the first day of the first month of the of the first day of the first month of the second year from going out of, of Egypt, so it's right at the beginning. The uh, the rest of Parshas Chukas suddenly we go fast forward forty years because the next story, the death of Miriam, is forty years later. So the question is, why? Now, obviously, what happened during the middle of the forty years? The Jewish people traveled from place to place. We know nothing about it other than in Parshas Maseh, later, the Torah is going to tell us all the places they traveled. We have no dates when they traveled, when they went. We just know that they traveled, for most of them. And really, there's nothing. I don't even know if there's anything in the Midrash. It's, so, it's really phenomenal that for the entire 40 years, after year number one, after the first year and a half, until the 40th year, in which we have the last events that are going to be discussed now, we have zero information what happened during those 40 years. Probably it was uneventful, or maybe if things happened, it wasn't important for, to be part of the Torah that we should know what happened. Any case, but Miriam passes away, and as I said earlier, uh, when Miriam passed away, there was no water because the 
I didn't mention this earlier today, but because of that, because the water, the be'er, the, 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 the miraculous stone that provided water was in the merit of Miriam, and then they complained without the water, Moshe hits the rock. Also, this is, again, all these events happened right at the end. So here's the question, why the, the putting, why the, how do they call it, I think uh, in English, the juxtapositioning of the beginning of, of Chukas to the end of Chukas, which is so dramatic, uh, um, you know, if you put it after uh, Korach, we understand, because even though it's 40 years later, but it's the next event. But why connect it to a parsha that happened all the way six months earlier uh, at, the, at the beginning of uh, Parshas Nisan, uh, Chodesh Nisan, why, why, what's the relationship? So a simple answer is, Rashi really answers that question. Rashi asks, why is the parsha of Miriam uh, stated next to the mitzvah of Paraduma? next to the midst of the red heifer, and Rashi gives an explanation. Rashi says, that's because to teach you a special lesson, the Torah wants to teach you. That just like the red heifer, the paraduma, brings kapara, brings atonement, so too, when a tzaddik passes away, and Miriam was a tzaddikist, she brought atonement for the world. And that's the reason why this is placed next to it. Okay. So we have an explanation why Miriam's death is next to the paraduma. In other words, this would really explain why Paraduma was taken out of context. It should have been earlier and placed over here. Once we understand that, we can really answer the rest of it because all the next parshios are all continuation to the story of Miriam. Simple. So the, 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 there's no question. In other words, the Torah is going narrating the story as it is in the right order. It left that one mitzvah, which is Paradum, and it placed it over here in order that we should make that to teach us that lesson that the passing of a tzaddik from the world has a tremendous impact in purifying the, the, the creation. Fine. Pur, pur, uh, bringing atonement for the world. Good. So now, we're, now, now we have a good answer. However, we ha- it's, it, it would make sense to say that the rest of the parsha of Chukas, which means all the other stories following the passing of Miriam, and primarily the main story is the Jewish people trying to find access to go into Eretz Yisrael and that and how they began that conquest by conquering the lands of Sichon and Og also have a direct connection to the story at the beginning of the parsha, the the the, the, the mitzvah of Paraduma, the mitzvah of the Red Heifer. So I want to know, or asking is, what's the connection? Especially since it's all part of the name of the parsha, Parsha's Chukah. So there should be the Torah is accurate, the Torah is perfect, there must be a deeper lesson for this connection. Now, um, another question. The end of the Parsha, as I mentioned, the Jews conquer the lands of Sichon and Og. Now, where are the lands of Sichon and Og? They are in the western side of the Jordan River. Now, the lands of Sichon and Og are not part of Eretz Yisrael. They were never supposed to be part of Eretz Yisrael. Oh, they're not part of, of the seven nations that God promised to the Jewish people. However, um, because of the war, we conquered their lands. What happens? The, the Pasuk says that the Jewish people settled the land. That's what it says. The Jewish people settled in the land of Amori. And then it continues with Vayishlach Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu sends after they conquered the land of Sichon, Moshe sends scouts, spies, or what he calls it, Leragelas Yazer, to inspect, uh, feel out the area called Yazer. That must have been a suburb of the Amorite kingdom. 
And it says, Vayilkadu ben they conquered its provinces. Ben means the small villages around it. And the Amorites that were there were driven out. And the Jewish people took possession of the land. So Rashi says on the words, Vayilkadu, they conquered it. Who conquered it? So Rashi says, it was the spies himself. Moshe sends these scouts, the scouts themselves, and even though there were maybe one or two scouts, a couple of guys, they conquered an entire area. How did they do it? So Rashi says they were trusting in the prayer of Moshe. It's like this is like a Shimon and Levi story, two, two, two against the hundreds. They were able to do it with the power of Moshe. The interesting thing, and Rashi says, they said, hold on, now, 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 it's interesting is that Moshe never told them to conquer it. Moshe said, go inspect it. So they did more than Moshe asked. Moshe said, inspect it. They said, you know what, let's already take the land. And they, went, they took it. Now what's really, really, really shocking is the, the, this generation is already the generation that's, Rashi says earlier, when, when he brings the death of Miriam, the passing of Miriam, and it says, all the people came to Midbar Sin. The Pasuk says, Kola Eida, all the people came. So Rashi says, the reason it says Kola Eida is because this is an assembly, this is a congregation that are all perfect, they're ready to enter the land of Israel because they have already lost or completed, sadly, the death of all those that were meant to die. All those that were 20 years and older by the time of the, sp- of the spies, all the men that, were, that, that God had decreed they have to die in the desert, that entire generation was already completed their passing away. And this is already the new generation ready to, ready to land. So you would think that the younger generation who spent 40 years in the Midbar and realized the horrible catastrophe of what happened to their parents who had, um, as, a, as, as a result of the devastating mission of the spies, you would think that they would have learned their lesson. And what's the lesson? The lesson is when you're sent on a mission, follow instructions. Because what, you know, the main problem with the spies or as they said, Lashon Hara about the land of Israel, they persuaded Jewish people not to go in, but it all begins with the, with the idea they didn't follow instructions. Because you can ask the question, going back to the story of the spies, Moshe told the, Jewish, the, the spies, come and give us a report. So what, what, what did they wrong? They gave, what did they do wrong? They gave a report. These guys are giants over there, militarily we stand no chance, and so on and so forth. It's explained that the reason it was considered a sin, Moshe never told them to give me a conclusion. Moshe never said, give me you know, your decision if we should go into the land of Israel or not. I'm not looking for your decision. Go check out, tell us the order, what, where it's, what would probably be the best way for us to enter and so on and so forth. Not making a decision whether we go or we don't go. The problem was that they added to Moshe Shlichus. And therefore, they messed up. The younger generation should have learned the lesson. Here we have the Maraglim going, these spies, these new spies, and they do exactly what they would... <clears throat> what Repeat the same mistake. Haven't you learned anything? What's the mistake? They added to what Moshe told them. Moshe said, go scout out the land, and they conquered it. To add to that, to make the question stronger, Rashi says that the reason they did, they went and they conquered it, was they, they said, we're not going to be like the first spies. It's not like they forgot. Maybe they forgot, you know, they, 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 they were the later generation. It's hard, it would be impossible to say they forgot, but <laughs> even if we can be Mohammed's chus, we can find some kind of that they forgot. Here it says 
clearly they said we're not going to be like the first spies that were afraid to go to Eretz Yisrael. We're going to conquer this land. But they're not listening to Moshe. Right? So because of their non... They didn't want to repeat the previous mistake. They seem to repeat the same problem or, or repeat the same, have the, the same mistake of not listening to one. But it doesn't seem like it was a mistake because there was no complaints about it. Quite to the contrary, the land that was conquered was settled by the Jewish people. So it's strange. Now, when it says over here that the Jewish people settled in the land of Amori, in Parshas Chukas we only have a very brief description about that, that they settled in the land of Amori. It doesn't say settled means they actually took possession. They lived there. It doesn't give us details about it. Um, in later in Parshos Matos, we're going to get a better description of what happened. Being that this was not part of the land of Israel, so why did they settle this land? So the Pasuk describes that there were two tribes, Gud and Ruvain. They had a lot of flock. They were very, they had lots of of animals, and because they had, and they saw that the lands of Sichon Va'og were very, very good pasture lands. The land of Israel was exceptionally for farming, but the land of the, that's on the eastern side of the Jordan, the western side of the Jordan had very good grazing pasturing lands. Being that they had a lot of flock, a lot of cattle, so they asked Moshe, you know, we don't want to cross the Jordan, give us this land, this will be our inheritance. Torah describes how Moshe gets very angry at them and rebukes them. But in the end, they explain to Moshe that they're planning to join the conquest. They're not scared. They're planning to join the conquest to help conquer the land and the land of the seven across the Jordan. And then they plan on coming back and asking Moshe if we can have this land. In the end, Moshe agrees and he gives it to them. And they're the ones who settle the land. Now, when they settle the land, it's going to describe later in Matos that they, na- they changed in old names, they gave him Jewish names. And you even have a person, his name is Yoir, the son of Menashe, who names the whole province after himself because he didn't have any children. So he wanted to have some kind of an a area named after him called Chavos Yoir. That's, his, that's that, his, his area. Now, from this we see that the emphasis, again, over here in the end of Chukas, and later as it's further described, is that there is an extra piece of land that's kind of annexed to the land of Israel. Or, and it's, it, it, the fact that the Jewish people give it Jewish names is showing a deep connection to that land, to, the Jewish, to Israel. That this is like, it's not Israel, but yet it became a Jewish land. Which is very, very strange. Because when God took us out of Egypt, he promised us a land of milk and honey. Throughout the entire journey, Moshe keeps on promising the Jewish people again, that land of milk and honey, the land of seven nations. There's obviously some incredible spiritual dynamics to the land of Eretz Yisrael that God wants to give particularly that land. That's like the nucleus of creation. That's the holy land that has all the qualities of Eretz Yisrael, which there's no end to the qualities of the land of Israel. And this has been the dream and the aspirations of the Jewish people. And over here, suddenly two and a half tribes it's again, two tribes asked for it, and Moshe actually gave another half of a tribe, half of Menashe, gave them the, 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 the land west of the Jordan River. It's a strange thing. They ended up living outside of Eretz Yisrael, which is really, really 
you know, uh, unbelievable. How is it that they did not go into Eretz Yisrael? They chose themselves the land outside of the borders of Eretz Yisrael. Does not make any sense, especially when we consider the the pain and the suffering. Back to the question I asked earlier on the spies, but here it's even stronger that after we consider the pain, the suffering, the horrible consequences of the Jewish people rejecting Eretz Yisrael 40 years late, earlier, and here you come, and they repeat the same thing. They're not going into Eretz Yisrael. doesn't make any sense. They don't go into the land of Israel. First of all, you have to understand their motivation. What's their motivation? They have a lot of cattle, and it's good grazing fields. You know, a lot of people want to stay in America forever because they have good businesses here and they live in Nechwez. Well, we live in Beverly Hills in California. It's great weather. Obviously, I'm saying today's days, it's not, it, there's nothing wrong with that because Mashiach did not come yet. And therefore, we're, we're not yet com- commanded, so to speak, to go live in the land of Israel. There is a mitzvah in living there, okay? I'm not going to get into that whole thing. Should everybody living in the diaspora go to the land of Eretz Yisrael? There are those who hold it, yeah. <clears throat> I would say that the Lubavitcher Rebbe did not see it as a mitzvah to do that now, meaning uh, that communities still need to be in the diaspora until whenever the, the, the time comes. But again, I'm not going into that debate, into that question. But um, here we're talking about, after the geula is here already, these yidden are supposed to go to Eretz Yisrael. They're not going because of their cattle? I mean, for that, they're going to give up on the goods of, for themselves, the spiritual gain that they're going to get them, their wives, their families. <clears throat> it's not like in, in the land of Israel, the cattle can't survive. They will. It's just not as, 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 uh, gr- doesn't have as rich grazing fields. And after they saw God provide, what do you think God can't provide for their cattle in the land of Israel? It's strange. Very strange thing. Now, even though we do find that Moshe Rabbeinu accuses them of repeating the sin of the spies. He tells them, this is what your fathers did, and so on and so forth. But in the end, Moshe agrees, consents, concedes to give it to them. The reason is, because they explained to Moshe Rabbeinu that they're not like the spies. The spies didn't want to go to Eretz Yisrael because they were afraid of the war. They were afraid militarily uh, they were they would be over, they were overwhelmed by the powerful nations that were living over there they said we're all going to be slaughtered we are children they said we're not afraid on the contrary we're planning to join the campaign the military campaign actually the bnei god the the, the 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 tribe of god were the first ones they were on the front lines they were great warriors they were on the front lines in the battle they spent 14 years helping the jewish people settle the land and only then did they go back to their families to set up their, you know, to, to, to go back home and to live with their families. So what do you see from, so, oh, so what do we see from here? That the whole, the, the, only, the only dialogue between Moshe and them, the accu, Moshe's, in a sense, accusation that they're like the spies and their defense was only regarding one, one, one part, and that is the fact that they're causing the Jewish people to panic and to be afraid of the war, and this would be similar to the panic and the fear that they had 40 years earlier. So Moshe says, please don't do this. Haven't we suffered enough? But otherwise, it seems like the very notion and idea that they're not going to live in Eretz Yisrael was accepted by Moshe. How can that be? How can it be that when we have the land of Eretz Yisrael, which is such a holy land, 
saturated with spiritual light and, and all the blessings that Hashem has given. Hashem's eyes are upon that land particularly. That has the specific divine blessing. The Gemara says that all the other countries in the world are only receiving the remnants of the blessing, the leftovers of the blessing to the land of Eretz Yisrael. How can it be that the B'nai God, the B'nai Ruvain, um, settled for less? Not only settled for less, they asked for less and Moshe would give it to them. So there must be a deeper reason over here. Especially, let's take it a little deeper to make the question even stronger. It is explained the deeper reason why the B'nai Gad and the B'nai Ruvain wanted to stay on the western side of the Jordan and not go over onto the eastern side of the Jordan. It says that the reason is because they particularly did not want to engage in farm work they wanted to be shepherds. They decided their occupation was going to be shepherds. And therefore, this land was more conducive for shepherding. Fine. Why do they want to be shepherds? They wanted to continue the, the, the tradition of their forefathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They were also shepherds. Why were they shepherds? It's the one job that doesn't take that much mental, mental um, energy. When a person is out in the, in the field, you, know, you, you sit down, you can take a flute, you can play the music, the animals are doing their thing. You have to watch over them. But it, it's not requiring a, such an investment. And Avram Yitzhak and Yaga, our forefather says, and also the Shvatim, liked that occupation because they, they wanted to be able to cleave to God, to meditate, to daven, to study, to be in a state of spiritual connection to Hashem. Working as a farmer is very, very, very exhausting mentally, emotionally. It requires the entire person to be invested. They wanted to be in a more spiritual place. They wanted to be detached from the distractions of physical life. That's the reason the B'nai God and B'nai Ruven wanted to be on the other side of the, of the Yardin. Others want to be shepherds, and for shepherding, this would be the better place. Now, if based on that, the question is even stronger because we know that that exactly was the point of the Maraglim. The spies weren't just physically, didn't reject the land for just physical reasons. I mean, especially a generation that was so spiritual and so close to God and witnessed the giving of the Torah and the, and the splitting of the sea and all the miracles to say that all they keep, that they just because of whatever physical reasons. So it's explained that the, deep, the deeper motivation in the Maraglim was they were enjoying it so much, living in the desert and living a miraculous existence where all their needs were taken care of. And spiritually, they were in such an elevated state. They knew that they're going to go into the land of Israel, they're going to have to get their hands dirty with the grime and the muck of everyday physical living. They didn't want to deal with that. They wanted to remain, like you say, yeshiva-lite. They wanted to stay in kolel. They wanted to stay learning all the time. Why was that so bad? So why was it considered a terrible, terrible sin? It was considered a terrible sin because... Because Hashem decided when He created the world that He wants to have a home. That's the reason He created the world. Hashem decided He wants to have a home in the lowest material, in the lowest world. The physical earth should become His home. And how is the physical world going to become elevated to be a home for God? That's going to be through the Jewish people refining the physical. How do we refine the physical? Through the Torah and mitzvahs, primarily the mitzvahs that we do with the earth. 
the mitzvahs associated with the soil, the tithing and the giving of the bekurim and the giving the gifts to the poor and all the mitzvahs, the non-mixing of the various different things, kilayim, and all these earth mitzvahs are mitzvahs that involve literally with the soil. We create and we elevate the lowest material in the world and make it into a godly place. Being that that's the objective of all of creation, when a person, and even though it does require a certain sacrifice, because when you're not engaging the earth, you're in a more spiritual place and therefore able to connect Hashem in a deeper way, temporarily, until Mashiach comes, when the greatest light is going to come from the physical. But since that's the purpose, you have to forego on your um, spiritual gain to do what God wants, and God wants the physical occupation. So if this goes against the very, very, very seed of creating, of what creation and purpose is all about, we can understand why Hashem got so upset at the Maraglim. And here, the Bnei God, the Bnei Ruvain, repeat the exact same mistake. Or do the, not mistake, they repeat the same thing. They don't want to go because they want to stay in other land. <clears throat> and yet, <clears throat> it all goes by, and it is accepted, and it's good, and they take possession of the land. That's a strange thing. So the answer to all of this is phenomenal. This Lubavitcher Rebbe gives such insight. He says like this. He says that, you know, when you go back to the story of Eretz Yisrael, you go back to its origins. The first promise that Hashem gave to the Jewish people that He will give them the land is on Parshas Lech Lecha. And really by the, by the Brisbane Absarim, by the covenant that God made with Avram Avinu. Now it's mentioned in Lech Lecha actually before that, when Avram comes in land, but according to the Ramban, Nachmanides, Brisbane Absarim happened even before Lech Lecha. The, the, this, this class today we were talking so much about chronological order the Ramban proves that the latter part of Lech Lecha where God makes that covenant with Avram um, after the, the cutting of the animals and that whole thing happened actually early and that's the first time Hashem promised Avram Avinu about giving him the land and that promise Hashem promises Avram the land of ten nations I don't have a Chumash Bereshus in front of me let me see if there's one within physical reach over here. Oops, I can get one, so I'll read it to you. So in Lech Lecha, so what's the land that Hashem promises Avram? Oh. This is in, in, in Bereshis, in Genesis, chapter 15, Perik Tezvav. Pasuk Yud Ches, the 18th verse. On that day Hashem made a bris with our father Abraham. To your children I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. And he tells them which lands. The Keni, Knizi, and Kadmoini. We never heard of these nations before. Meaning, they're not part of the seven nations. These are the three extra ones. Then he says, Chiti, Prizi, Rephaim, Moiri, Knani, Girgashi, Yavusi. Another seven nations. The latter seven are the latter are the seven that are mentioned later, in which Moshe conquered when the Jewish people went into the land of Israel. But there's another three that are mentioned over here. What happens with these three nations? So it is explained that even though the Jewish people did not conquer it in their first conquest, they are going to conquer it in their future conquest. That means we never really took full possession of the land of Israel as it was intended to by Hashem when He gave the land to Avram Avinu. 
for whatever reason, we weren't meant to. Which are these three extra countries, these extra lands? These lands are the land of Edom, which we speak about in this parasha that the Jewish people surrounded the land. They did not take possession of it. Again, they asked Edom to bypass. Edom didn't allow. They went around it. Why? Because that's one of the lands that was forbidden for them. as the land of Edom, that's, and that's given to Esav as an inheritance until the end of days. Then there's another two lands, the land of Ammon and the land of Moab. These are the two children of Lot. And again, these three lands are meant to be part of Eretz Yisrael, but the land of Israel, but it was not yet given to be Eretz Yisrael in the past. It will be given in the future. Um, now, what is the reason for that? Let me, let me first, what's the reason for that? Why is it that the seven lands were given to us immediately when we went out of Egypt, and the land and the three um, other countries are only going to be landed on when Mashiach will come. So we understand that Eretz Yisrael, in addition to it being a physical land, since it's the seat where God is going to manifest his, his light for the entire world, that's when Mashiach will come. And even again, in the past, we had a base Amigdash there and so on and so forth. We understand that the land is perfectly designed to be a facilitator of all the spiritual light and all the, of, of the divine presence. Seven and three is the makeup of the human experience. We have three intellectual powers called Chabad, Chachma Bin Adas, three intellectual powers. We have seven emotional powers, according to Kabbalah, that make up our, our emotional structure. Okay, kindness, severity, compassion, victory or perseverance, glory, foundation, and malchut, royalty, kingship. These are the seven. We're not going to get into it now what these are and listen to other classes we discuss it this is the this is the structure the human structure now we know we're created in the image of God because Hashem too manifests himself through ten sefirot when the Jewish people are going to settle the land when Mashiach will come we will have the complete downloading of God into the world in these ten countries seven countries manifesting Hashem's emotional attributes the three added ones manifesting God's intelligence, a higher revelation of Hashem. When we went into Eretz Yisrael with Joshua, with Yeshua, we were given the task of purifying, the world is created in, in an unholy way, and especially after the sin of the tree of knowledge, of the Chet of the Eitz Adas, it came about a horrible perversion and pollution to all of the world. The world is not ready to be a home and an expression to receive God. There's a lot of evil there, negativity. The Ra is mixed with the Tov. So we need to purify. So the land of Israel needs to be pure, needs purification. And how do we purify the land of Israel? By purifying our own seven emotions. Our seven emotions need to be rectified. For example, you have an emotion of love. Our love is all over the place. We should have our passion and our love only for what's right, correct, and good. But we know that our passion gets, gets um, misguided and drawn. Ask yourself, what are the things you love? Do you have any passions and desires that are unhealthy, 
ungodly, the Torah doesn't approve of, anything not kosher, I do, I'm sure, maybe unless everybody is listening is a tzaddik, but probably I would imagine that there are certain things you want and desire that are not kosher, right? So that means a mixture of our love. When we work on our love and we purify our emotions, then we purify also that particular part of the land and it becomes a seat for, for the revelation of Hashem. The main work that we need to do in purification is not in the intelligence. The main work that we need to do is in the emotions because that's where most of the mixture of good and bad. The intellect is, is not as impacted by the darkness. You see it in, 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 by us, for, by, by, by most, most people. Is Even though sometimes you do have, <laughs> sadly, an unhealthy mind, but, you know, an unhealthy mind sometimes is easier to fix, right? Because you just have to expose the person to the right idea, especially in the mind, the mind is of, of the, uh, a mind that seeks the truth. The moment it sees truth and, under, and, and correct wisdom, it recognizes the falsehood of false ideas, and it can drop it very easily. The heart is different. Even though you can, the, the, you can you, we all know what's right. We know it's not healthy for me to crave and to desire and to want. Let's say there are certain addictions and things that are not. I know it's not healthy, but you know what can I do? I just, I'm, 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 I feel I can't separate myself from it. Or we have, let's say, for we have an unholy, we have anger issues, right? So that anger is, is the is the gavura element of us, mis, misused. And people struggle with rage and anger all their life. People struggle with lusts and negative desires all their life, even though they know it's correct. It says that the, the mixture of good and bad on the emotional arena, in the emotional range, is much deeper and stronger than the, than the brain and the mind. Most of us, hopefully those listening to the shir, have a general correct attitude philosophically to life. It's just translating that from the head to the emotions. So what's our workload? Our workload is the purification of the seven emotions. Since that's our workload, we were only given, in current days, the land of the seven nations. We were not given the land of the ten nations because that's a level that's above, that's more like a reward. It belongs to the future. It's not necessary now. You've got to work on your emotions. Fix your emotions. Conquer the land of the seven. Make it into... Make your own emotional world, transform it from being a, 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 a land of seven nations that are unholy, the Canaanim and the Amori, which, which were representing a very unholy state of the emotions, transform it and make it all into Eretz Yisrael, into a holy land, into a godly land. That's how it works. So therefore we were given, at, now in order for us to fix it, to fix our negative emotions, we need to download the energy from the God's holy emotions. So by conquering Eretz Yisrael, if you think about it, there is two parts to it. The physical land is the place that we need to fix. We need to correct. We need to purge the evil out of it by purging the, unhe- the negative traits, the negative aspects in our own internal emotional state. So by purifying our emotion, we purify the land. But what gives us the strength to be able to do that? We have access to the divine emotions, to God's love, to God's discipline, to Hashem's compassion. And by downloading these spiritual powers, 
they help us rectify our own and thereby purifying the land. And then the consequence of that is that the seven divine spirit, godly emotions manifest perfectly in the land of Israel. That's the work we have today. Now, in order for us to do that, we need to use our minds. It's not like we're, there's, no in, there's no intellectual involvement. We rectify our emotions by giving them guidance of the intellect. So we need to have, we need to study, we need to learn, we need to connect to God's intelligence as well. However, in intelligence itself, there is two levels of intelligence. There is the intelligence that is meant just to guide the emotions, and then there is pure intellect, pure, pure knowledge. The level of intelligence that is required for rectifying the emotions is a far inferior level of intellect. I'll give just a little example to that. We know human beings are intellectual beings. We have intellect. Animals don't have intellect. Yet we know that animals are, can be super smart in hunting, in doing certain things that are just brilliant sometimes. So what do we mean that animals don't have intellect? So it is explained, they have intelligence, but they have an intelligence that's serving their emotions. They don't have pure intellect for the sake of intellect. An animal never sits down to ponder the meaning of life. He will have very sharp and shrewd ideas of how to hunt or how to protect herself or himself. But without, but no pure independent intelligence. So similar to that, we can understand that in, the, in, in general, the realm of intellect has two parts to it. The very lower part of it, let's say the last 5% of it, is meant to be a guide for the emotions. 95% of the intelligence, its true power of intellect is above it all. It's meant to be a, 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 a source, it's meant to be our means of connecting to the highest and the truest. And to, right? So, for that reason, we did not get the land of the three nations because the land of the three nations represent pure intellect. By the way, I said earlier, what are the Kani, Knizi, and Kadmoni there? Edom, Ammon, and Moab. So you can see it in the names Ammon and Moab. I saw this in the Bnei Yisachar. He says, Moab is Chachma, because Moab means from the father. We know Kabbalistically, father is called the first of the intellectual attributes called Chachma. Ammon, if you change around the word, you get the word Noam. Noam means pleasantness, which means pleasure. Because it says that in Bina, in the second intellectual faculty, in the second level of intelligence, when you can really, when you appreciate and you learn something and you fully grasp it and are able to, to see and appreciate and, and really wrap your mind around it and really absorb it, that's when you become, that's when you have pleasure. In the Chachma stage, you don't really have that much revealed pleasure. In the in the Bina state, ah, that's when you feel like the, the light. That's why Amon is Noam, because that's where pleasure is. Edom is related to either Keser, that's why it's red, very intense light, or Das, which is, as we said before, Chachma, Bina, Das. These are the three intellectual. So we had no need for taking that land at that particular time back at when we went into Eretz Yisrael because we weren't ready for it. It would only be a distraction. It wasn't meant to be. It would be a distraction. It wouldn't help us. It's possible we would forsake working with our emotions 
because we would just get caught up in intellectual pursuits that have not related to us fixing our personality traits and our character traits. Sometimes a person uses intellectual pursuits as a distraction from the things they need to fix. So therefore, we didn't have access to those three countries. However, when Moshiach will come, after the thousands of years of purification of Torah and mitzvahs and the long exile, in which we go through purification after purification, we will have finished and completed the rectification of our seven emotional attributes. It's at that time that Hashem will introduce to us the three intellectual, the revelation of the three intellectual powers, Chachma, Bina, Das, that will manifest in those three countries, Edom and Ammon and Moab, which will then be annexed to Eretz Yisrael, and we will have Eretz Yisrael to its completion. We understand that the spiritual quality of Eretz Yisrael, once we have not just the seven midot, the seven emotions, but also the Chabad, the Chachma Bin Adas, the quality of Eretz Yisrael, the spiritual quality, the holiness, is going to experience an exponentially great upgrade. That means, in addition to having those extra lands, would add, add to us levels of, of, of holiness, levels of access to God like we've never had before. Even the emotions, even the other part of Eretz Yisrael is going to is going to be elevated to incomprehensible holiness. So really we can say that the two Eretz Yisrael's that we have is the Eretz Yisrael that we had in the past, even in the days of David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech, which was really phenomenal, was severely compromised in compared to the Eretz Yisrael that is going to be after Mashiach comes. So now we'll understand the significance of the the, the tribes of God and Ruvain and their request to want to be in, 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 in to take the land on the eastern side of the Jordan. The reason for that, Bipnimius, meaning the deeper reason, the deeper motivation, was because they knew the secret of those three lands. And they knew that even though it, it's not meant yet to be part of it, oh, let's take a look at the territory that they lived in. Which land did they settle in? They settled in the land of Sichon. Okay, Sichon is the Amorite king. Now that's not part of these three countries. Or, or that, so it seems. It's not part of these three lands. It's the Amorite land, seeming to be never supposed to be part of Eretz Yisrael. But let's take a look at one more very important detail. It says that, um, and the Talmud derives it from it, what it says. It says actually in the Psukim, in the end of this parsha, that Sichon earlier, before his encounter with the Jewish people, Sichon um, did a land grab. He was a big bully. He was a, a mighty warrior. He conquered a strip of land from his neighbor, Moab, and from his other neighbor, Ammon. He took a piece of land, part of it that once belonged to Ammon and part of it that belonged to Moab, and he incorporated and he annexed it to the land of Amori. Once he took that land and swallowed it into the Amorite kingdom, the Jewish people were allowed then to take that land and live in it. And even though we were warned by God, do not, Altatzeres Moab, don't start up with Moab, it's not meant to be yours, at least not yet, and don't bother with Ammon, don't try to take their land, that's 
while they're holding on to it. If another country went and changed the borders, so the land that was once supposed to be Ammon and Moab became now part of the land of, of Amori. So it's no more the land of Ammon and Moab in as much that we're not allowed to take it. And therefore, we were, when we conquered it, we actually got part of the geographic location that is Ammon and Moab, which means that it has really the spiritual quality of those intellectual properties of God, which is futuristic, but we managed to have it already then. These are the words the sages say, Ammon and Moab, Tiharu Besichon. They became purified through Sichon. In other words, they became kosher for conquest for the Jewish people as a result of what Sichon did. Comes out according to this, an amazing thing. That because that, the, that, that territory, that when, when the Jews conquered Sichon, they actually have part of the future Eretz Yisrael with all of its spiritual greatness, with all of its incredible light. And that's why B'nai Gadna, B'nai Ruvain wanted that land. They wanted that land because of the spiritual quality of it and also because they wanted that the current conquest of Eretz Yisrael, the previous, the conquest that was happening then, should already have within it a connection to the ultimate conquest of Eretz Yisrael. Because the two really have to be, in other words, there should never be an Eretz Yisrael that really has its head chopped off. We want Eretz Yisrael that should always have a connection to its head. These three factors, the head, is the brains. So they wanted at least a narrow channel that the, early, that the Eretz Yisrael of then should possess something of the ultimate Eretz Yisrael. And that was their reason. And this will also fit with what I was saying earlier, that they were people, they wanted to be shepherds, and the reason they wanted to be shepherds was because they wanted to be removed from earthiness. They wanted to be living in a higher spiritual plane where they can devote their mind and their thought to studying, to knowing God. Fits really well. That land is conducive to that because that land is the land of the intellect and not the intellect that supports the emotions, that guides the emotions, but the pure intellect, intellect for the sake of intellect. And that's why that was the land where you would not work the land, the land meaning the emotions, that, the, the area that needs to be purified, a more of a sublime state of service of God, a little bit of a detached kind of a service. So what they asked for was really noble, and when they conquered the land, there was something, they contributed something very, very important to our taking of the land of Eretz Yisrael. They made it be a foretaste of the Messianic era. That's awesome. Now, but one can argue the question that I asked before. Um, they're, repeating the, they're repeating the sin of the, of, the, of, of the spies. The spies also wanted to live a detached life without having to deal with the dark elements of life, to just float above it, live in the desert, without fixing the world. But it's not, you, you can't compare. You see, the problem with the Miraglam was that the Miraglam wanted all the Jewish people to remain in the desert. We shouldn't go into the land of Israel. That means we would be, on a national scale, neglecting our main purpose to be a light onto the nations and to be a purifier of all of the physical material world. We couldn't neglect that. That could not be neglected. That should never be... That goes against God's plan in creating the world. 
what the tribes of B'nai Gad and B'nai Reuven wanted was that a group of Jewish people should be, should be designated to be above the grime of daily living. And that's actually a necessity. That's actually something that's very positive. We see, for instance, amongst the Jewish people, Hashem designated one tribe, Shevet Levi, to be the clergyman. Now, it's, all, it's, not, it's not just for the sake of the Levites, it's for the sake of all the Jewish people. When we are, when people are very engaged as businessmen and mentally and emotionally entangled in the physical world, it's very possible for people to lose their compass, to lose their direction. As we start looking at the physical material things in our lives as an end to itself, not as a means to an end to serve Hashem, which is the whole purpose. So we need to look up to certain rabbis, we need to look up to certain people who live in a more loftier existence, whose sense of direction and purpose is very, very, very strong so that they can lead and inspire the rest of the Jewish people to have higher ambitions and higher ideals in life. For another example is, we know that the two brothers that are so deeply connected to each other, Yisachar and Zavulin. Yisachar, the descendants of Yisachar were Torah scholars. The Zavulin uh, tribe were merchants. And it says the two of them made a pact that they studied Torah and they, they supported them. But the support that the Zavulinites supported the Torah studiers wasn't just a one way that they're supporting and they're getting reward. It's not just fit, it simply is, they get part of their Torah learning. It's like people today also make a contract called the Yisachar Zavulin contract. I'm going to support you, you study Torah on my behalf. You can do that. And this is like based on the Yisachar Zavulin kind of a thing. But it's not just that you're getting a reward in the, in the, in the world to come. The reward that you're getting is that your buddy, the Yisachar Jew, is going to keep you, keep your head in the right place. He's going to keep on pulling you out, say, demand of you, come to a shir, come study, come learn, come be part of something higher. So he's going to elevate the masses. You need to have, desig- the majority of the Jewish people need to work, need to be part of the workforce, because that's how we engage and fix the world, with mitzvah observance. But there needs to be a minority that remains above and the Bnei God and Bnei Ruvain were asking to be that minority, to be aloof. Therefore, it was kosher, it was a good request, it was positive, and it was needed. Spiritually, we can say that by having people, especially if we, based on what we said before, by having some people that have access to the three intellectual powers that are lofty and above, the, these people can inspire the rest of the Jewish people that are engaged in the emotional arena to have some light from a higher place. Because even though it's not necessary for the purification, when you have a bolt of light from a pure, a purely intellectual light from a very high place, it elevates your entire being to a higher place. Even if you can't use that information directly to refine your character, it still places you in a higher realm. So you had these two tribes and that, and that, and that elevated land. So now, if we think about it, we will realize that the Bnei God and the Bnei Ruvain and the spies that, you, that, that Moshe sent to conquer, to, to spy, to scout on the city of Yazer, and in the end they, they conquer it and they went and they did more than Moshe. Not only didn't they repeat the sin of the spies, they actually rectified the sin of the, sin of the spies. They did, they, 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 they did the ultimate rectification. What do I mean by that? The Rambam says 
that the real tshuva, the ultimate tshuva, is when you take the same situation that you were in and caused you to sin and use that very situation for a positive thing. That's the ultimate tshuva. The Ramam gives an example of a person who sinned by having a forbidden relationship. So the Ramam says the ultimate tshuva is when they're in the situation, when they are have the same access, the Ramam says, to the same woman, the same situation that they're in a private setting and they could do the same sin they did before and they have the same physical desire and yet in that situation they do not do the sin and, 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 and say, I'm not doing it because God, because Hashem pro- pro- prohibited it. That's the ultimate tikkun. Okay, doesn't mean that we're supposed to search it for it because you never know. If we succumbed one time, we could succumb another time. But you really want to know that you did the full-fledged rectification, be in the same situation that you were and used it in a negative way, now you will use it in a positive way. So, um, the, 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 uh, so, the, so, so in, in, in our case, the, let's go to Moshe's spies. Moshe sent these spies. What did the earlier spies do? They added to what Moshe said. But when they added to what Moshe says, they, they, came, they brought a conclusion that it's not worth to go into the land. We can't go in. And they used that addition, additional thing that they were instructed by Moshe to detract, to dissuade the Jewish people from the purpose of life, which is going into Eretz Yisrael. So their addition that they added was used for a negative purpose, against God's will. That's what's negative. Here comes the tribe, and they wanted to make a tikkun on what their fathers did. So they did the exact same thing that the previous Meraglim did. They added to what Moshe Rabbeinu told them, but they added to what Moshe said to increase the possession in Eretz Yisrael, which means to, to, to take Eretz Yisrael, this Yazer area, which is going to be not just Eretz Yisrael as it is now, but already Eretz Yisrael with a little taste of the future. And the same is the Bnei God, the Bnei Ruvain. They're taking the exact same motivation that the Meraglim had. The Mara, the, number one, the, 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 they're repeating what the... Uh, the Meraglim, the, the spies of the past, or the Jewish people then, rejected Eretz Yisrael. They're, they're, they are not just rejecting Eretz they're, they're not rejecting Eretz Yisrael. They want more Eretz Yisrael. They want Eretz Yisrael, not... They shunned Eretz Yisrael, the earlier generation, the land of Israel. These people wanted Eretz Yisrael. Not just regular Eretz Yisrael, but we want the full Eretz Yisrael. See? More Eretz Yisrael. And their rectification was by taking that very same motivation of the Meraglim. What was the motivation of the Meraglim? That we want to remain in a world of Torah. We want to remain in a secluded world. But it was against God's will. They're using that motivation to remain in a secluded world, but in accordance to God's will. And what is that? A section of the Jewish people need to be above, above the grime of daily living. They did it in a very, in a very, in a very um, 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 mindful way. Not allowing their emotions to, to take over, but in a very, in a very clear and, and, and with, with a with a deep bitl Tashem's desire, what does God really want? And they were able to tap into the true desire of the Abishter. 
And therefore, it's very, very noble what they did. Actually, I'm just going to add one interesting point. It says that the B'nai God, the reason why they had a lot of animal, a lot of flocks, it says because they cherished the mun. All the other Jewish people in the Midbar, they, God supplied them with mun, but they were also hungry for meat. They had their own cattle, so they would shech, they would make barbecues all the time. And they were able to, you know, they had their meat. They cooked their meat, they had. The B'nai God never ate the meat. The reason they didn't eat, they were vegetarian. They ate the mun. And they weren't vegetarian for the sake of vegetarian. I'm not going to get into that right now. But they, they ate only mun. The reason because they loved the mun. To them, they didn't, never wanted to supplement the mun for anything else. And the reason is because it says by the mun, Vahamun kizera gad. That the mun was like the seed of corin, cor, coriander. And the word gad is the name of the tribe of God, the special connection between the man and Shevet God. Because of that, they had extra cattle. They had a large, because they never ate their, their animals. They didn't shech them. Now we know that the man, one of the things that the man was conducive was, was to, to develop the person's mind. It was more, it wasn't so much food for the stomach, it was food for the mind. It left you, it says it left them hungry, that's why it says, I starved you. Physically they were hungry, but intellectually they were very, 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 very increased their knowledge. That's why the B'nai God had a special desire for spiritual knowledge. And that's why they stayed dafka on the other side of the yard in the eastern banks of the Jordan, where you have them at least somewhat of a connection already to the ultimate Torah Chadasha, the new light, the new wisdom that's going to come when Mashiach will come. So now we'll understand the reason why the Torah on purposely leaves Chukas the, the story of the red heifer and puts it over here together with the rest of Parshas Chukas even though it's out of chronological order as we discussed earlier. And here's two points and with this we conclude. Point number one is that by putting these two events together juxtaposing these two events together the event of the mitzvah paraduma which happened before the story of Korach it happened before the story of the spies it happened when the Jewish people were still in a very elevated state. They just made the Mishkan. They were clean, they were holy, they were godly. And putting the next story, the story about the conquest of Eretz Yisrael, about the generation that was going in together, it's trying to tell us that just like Pasha's Chukas was at, a poor, was at a time when there was no blemish anymore from the, from the sin of the spies, and, and, and the Jews were in a very elevated state, so too this event happening at the end of Pasha's Chukas is referring to a time when the Jewish people are all pure, they've cleansed themselves completely from the sin of the spies. Their motivations are pure and holy. There isn't even a trace of a trace of the sin of the spies. So that is one idea. That the times bring the two together to show on the purity of motive that was really over here. There is no spies and no influence of the spies at all. In other words, because when you're reading Parsha, the Parsha Sefer Bamidbar, you read already about the spies, so everything that's happening afterwards is like a down, is a fall. It's still under the darkness of the spies. So in order to interrupt the, the, the influence of the, of the story of the Meraglim and to show us that we're, here there is a space to put a barrier that that's over, the Torah took, takes a mitzvah from before the story of the Meraglim and serves, kind of places it as a barrier that event is over, now they're very pure. But also deeper than that. 
the relationship of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is one that's intrinsic. It's one that can never be separated. We, God, God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one, but also the land of Israel is also one. With, with all of, with, it's all part of this one package. And therefore you can't separate between Yidin and the land of Israel, between Jews and the land of Israel. It's an absolute. If there's any absolute in creation, it's our relationship to the land of Israel. There's no, there's nothing that can be. And that is emphasized in the word chukas. Chuka in Hebrew means in addition to a law that's beyond reason. Chuka also means from the word engraving. Chuka chakakti or lachakok means to engrave. When you engrave a picture, an image, or a words on a piece of wood, on a piece of metal, when you engrave something on a stone, the words and the object in which it was engraved are one and they're inseparable. If you write something, you can erase it. You can take ink, you can scrub it off, you can erase it, you can remove it. When you engrave something, the material on which it is engraved and the words are inseparable. Jewish people and the land of Israel are inseparable. Not only that, the land of Israel itself is really a land of ten nations, not a land of seven nations. There are two phases in us reaching that stage. There's the first, the the land of seven, and then the land of the three. Two phases, early conquest, later conquest, Moshiach conquest. But in order that these two stages should not be seen as two separate entities, and that the land of Israel, Chas v'Shalem, back then, would have been without its head, without its brain. So that's why you had the story of the Bnei God and the Bnei Ruvain, who actually connected the conquest of the lands of Sichon, that connect the past land and the future land, emphasizes the chukah element of it. That the land of Israel is ours, and the entire land of Eretz Yisrael is ours, and you can't separate between the two parts. It's one chunk, it's one truth, it's one reality. And that is the reason why this whole story of the end of Chukas, which gives us the other side of the Georgian, the conquest of the other side of Eretz Yisrael, and contains within it this, this oneness, is all part of Chukah. It's inseparable, it's unbreakable, it's eternal, it's forever. Which this explains to us, which this explains to us, the significance, the awesome, the awesome significance of the Golan Heights being now a part officially of Eretz Yisrael. Um, the Golan Heights, again, there's, 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 there's different opinions of exactly what, where, and when, which, what's what, and it's a, it's a whole study that needs to be done. But one of the lands that was given to Shevet Menashe on the other side of the Jordan is called Golan, Golan Babashan, which part of it is the Golan. That means that part of that land is on the other side, it's, it's, it's on the other side of the Jordan, and it's, it's connected to the lands of the Bnei God and the Bnei Reuven or the land of the Menashe, half of the tribe of Menashe, which symbolizes the idea of the futuristic conquest of Eretz Yisrael and the Mochen. Could be that's also the reason why it's called the Golan Heights, because the Mochen, the intellect, is higher, much higher. 
And it's related to the new Torah that Moshiach is going to teach. You see, in Torah itself, there's the Torah that guides the emotions. That's our Torah that we have today. And then there is Torah Hadasha, the new Torah that Mashiach is going to teach, which is going to be pure intelligence, infinitely higher. That's why the, 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 the Medrash says the Torah we study today is considered foolish almost compared to the Torah of Mashiach. It's like beyond, beyond. It's like a person without seichel, without intellect, the pure intellect. That's the reason why right now that Mashiach comes, it's amazing that this was already officially recognized. When something is done officially, see what the nations do down here, their hearts are guided by Hashem. When Trump makes an announcement, it's because Hashem puts it in his mind. It's reflecting. Today's days we have access already to the Torah Chadash of Mashiach. We have access already to the full power of our spiritual inheritance. All of Eretz Yisrael. May we merit. And it's very important also to realize that we today are this generation in the end of Parshas Chukas. Because we're already the generation ready to enter into the Messianic age. We're compared to these Jews living at the very end of the... We've gone through already the, the, all, the, all, the, all the purifications that happened the 40 years in the desert. We're after the 40 years. We're at the conclusion already. We're ready for the ultimate conquest. So may Hashem already bless us that we should experience the full realization of Eretz Yisrael to its fullest. May we merit to see it unfold in front of our eyes, not just in a way that we appreciate it in a sheer but in a way that we can actually see it tangibly and physically with our eyes, with the revelation of Mashiach Tzedkenu. May it be now.